Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you call home on this hurtling marble through the universe. Right now, right this very second, you, my dear friend, you and your gorgeous eardrums are locked into the sweet, sassy sounds of Son of a Pitch. And today, I'm going to take you through one of my favorite things to talk about. It's about manipulation and whether or not it's actually bad. Let's jump straight into it and see what comes out of the other end. Either way, you, my friend, are listening to Son of a Pitch with Michael Kowenka. I am Michael Kowenka. Let's get cracking. All right, look, I'm going to level with you guys. Some of the stuff that I love talking about and teaching and training uh, my clients with involves the act of presenting information and communicating things in such a way that it shapes the listener's perspective on what you're saying. This can be as nuanced as an inflection or... A definitive statement of fact or a very calm way of saying you failed the exam either way how you say it shapes what you say what you say shapes what people hear and what people hear shapes their perception of you and your information on a very high level this process seems pretty straightforward. I choose the right words, the media, the space to communicate my ideas. And if it's done in such a way that people can understand, and the person receiving the information doesn't get that static, doesn't lose, almost like human broken telephone. In other words, broken telephone. Doesn't lose anything in between and gets exactly what I'm trying to say. So yeah, let's think about that for a second. Is, is persuasion manipulative? Is this act of shaping your message and changing how you say it, what you say it, where you say it, changing the context surrounding your persuasion is that, if you do it consciously, is that considered manipulative? And if it is, is that a bad thing? And why? So this is something that a number of my clients have come to me uh, saying, listen, man, I love your ideas, I love your strategies, your techniques are amazing, but... I can't help but feel like when I consciously influence people's perception of my messages, I'm in some way manipulating them to like what I have to say. And to a certain extent, they're not wrong. You are manipulating the circumstances and situation. You're showing them one angle of the truth to shape how they form their opinions and make their decisions. It's not unlike what journalists do. Although they strive for objectivity, there's always some form of bias. Reporting bias, observer bias, you name it. Even their own socioeconomic background, they will pick up on cues and they will see things that others might not and vice versa. So how do you craft your message, structure your presentations, your talks, your ideas, your pitches in such a way that it enhances the likelihood people will listen and love and remember your points, while at the same time avoiding that niggling sensation that I might be manipulating them. 
And even more appropriate is persuasion manipulative and is manipulation of information negative or unethical, which is a lot of what clients come to me with. They say, I don't feel like this is terribly above board. This is kind of, this is sketchy, dude. Why would I be messing with how people see the world? Why can't they just see it the way I see it? Well, as I'm sure you probably already know, it's not always easy to get people to see the way things, see things the way you see it. All right, manipulation. It's a tricky word. Something a lot of people know when they see it, but sometimes they don't see it when it's happening. Manipulation is something very different than persuasion or sales. A lot of people think that they're one and the same, and in a way, to a certain extent, they kind of are. Sales can be manipulated. Or being a good salesman can be manipulative. But what's interesting here is the fact that there's a subtle yet extremely important difference between manipulation and persuasion. In particular, the use of the term manipulation tends to connote something very negative. And rightly so. Manipulation is essentially an attempt to exert one's power over another, to control or negatively influence someone. In particular, controlling someone or something to your own advantage, usually in a very unfair and dishonest way. In fact, the term manipulation itself suggests dishonesty, suggests you messing with people so that you can get your way. And in reality, the beautiful thing about persuasion and negotiation is that it's nothing like manipulation. In particular, the beautiful thing about persuasion is that in order for you to truly be persuasive, to truly connect and get the other people, other your, your recipients, or get your counterpart to listen and get behind what you're trying to get across, is to actually listen to them more. There's a beautiful saying in negotiation circles that the art of negotiation is the ability to let someone else have your way. Let's think about that for a second. Now, no matter what your role is or who you are, negotiation itself is often polarizing. Either you love it or you hate it. No one is somewhere in the middle of it. Essentially, negotiation or persuasion as the art of letting someone else have your way is all about getting what you want while having the other person walk away thinking that they got what they wanted as well. No wonder most people are afraid of this very particular, often massive pain in the ass dance that we take. In fact, as someone who's self-proclaimed quite good at negotiations, even I find it annoying sometimes. Mostly in the vein of, oh, I have to negotiate this, why can't you just like the idea, it's a good idea, just go with it kind of approach. But when you have to convince other people, sometimes, if not always, the best way to get them to have a better understanding of your perspective is for you to gain a better perspective and a better understanding on them, on your counterpart. Now, one of my favorite books on the issue, uh, Getting to Yes, and this uh, subsequent Getting Past No by William Uri and Fisher, uh, talked about this concept of positions and interests. Without going too much into it, understanding 
what people are interested in accomplishing and contrasting that with the position they currently occupy like saying no I want a raise as opposed to no I want more financial freedom which can be done not just by a raise but in other ways maybe getting a day off or something like that by understanding where people's interests lie you can then frame your negotiation in a way that helps them get what they want and you inadvertently get what you want as well without knowing the other side's interests you're shit out of luck in getting anywhere in any negotiation you're just gonna butt heads and conflict and argue with a person thinking they're an idiot or they don't know anything or whatever it might be and not get anywhere and even if you do you probably get closer to a zero-sum game where someone has to win over the others than a shared trust-based exercise and just as a side rant there's a couple of people in the space that I operate that treat negotiations and pitching and presenting as this zero-sum game they treat it as though I need to win I'm in it to win it when in reality even in those competitions where you technically do win an investment or a partnership with an investor it's not a zero-sum game it's not I win and everyone else loses first off because everyone else gets to present their idea and everyone hears it and maybe inadvertently without winning the competition they win greater investment but the notion that there's a win-lose conversation here is already wrong to begin with when you start a pitch with the idea that you're gonna win something it's very outdated it's very old-school it's very 1950s madmen kind of thing where I'm gonna win a pitch and it creates this win or lose kind of attitude such that when you come home or when you come back to the office and they're like did you win it did you close that deal did you seal that deal did you did you get it did you, did you win I think that's a misnomer it's not about winning or losing it's about how you establish trust how you build a relationship and how you encourage a sense of reciprocity the deeper psychological meaning behind this or socio-psychological meaning behind this has its roots in social capital theory the notion of establishing bonds of trust and reciprocity that enhances people's ability to continue to do business with each other to continue to build a relationship and connect with each other and grow from a social capital even to a human and financial capital way to really really build better relationships and so at the end of the day it's not about winning or losing it's about playing the longer game it's about how do you build a relationship with your counterpart how do you understand what interests they have that you can solve and how do you create a relationship that continually seeks to forever discover and resolve the interests of your counterparty that is the essence of great pitches that is the essence of amazing presentations and that is what sales and negotiation ought to be about not did you win it is this a zero-sum game did you annihilate the competition are they down for the count will they ever get up again who knows dun, dun, dun. but no the big issue here my friends my dear listeners my sexy little eardrums on the other end of this microphone the big issue here is that when you see manipulation as a zero-sum game usually with you as the winner and everyone else as the loser when you see pitching as a win-lose kind of construct you become blinded to the fact that you have a counterparty you take away their freedom of choice for being a part of this dance this negotiation and instead railroad your ideas down their throats and even if they do swallow they won't come back for more 
as anyone will tell you, it's about that ongoing relationship that is the most valuable. A lot of investors that I speak to, they don't necessarily look at the number of sales. They look at the lifetime value that a company can bring to its clients and vice versa. And when you look at the notion of lifetime value, it gives you a bigger, broader, more powerful perspective on how to take relationships forward. Now, I read this one line that still sticks with me to this day. That's why I'm bringing it up now. I think it's by Denny in his book, To Sell is Human. Uh, in his book, he says, when people say no to you when you're pitching them, they're not saying no and slamming the door in your face. They're saying not now. Understanding where your pitch falls and your conversation falls along the spectrum of people's emotions and days and months and years and life. Understanding where that fits gives you a bigger perspective. The bigger picture here is what's key. So bringing us back to the main question here is persuasion manipulative short answer despite the 10 minutes of rambling that you just listened to is no and yes it's not manipulative if you persuade with the intent to help each other out to negotiate in fairness and good conscience, and to try to find ways that everyone can seek to gain from the negotiation from interacting with each other from building that relationship but persuasion is manipulative if you're trying to force something down someone's throat that they want nothing to do with if you're trying to get someone to do something they don't want to do if you've sold your idea in and your counterparty goes home and has buyer's remorse or hates the idea that you floated then you've been manipulative and that's not cool so in other words seeking a distributed outcome seeking a way to really enhance the relationship behind the negotiation behind the interaction that is where the real value lies that is where great pitches and stories and presentations flourish and that's where I think we need to draw most of our inspiration and attention towards All right, I can already hear you guys scratching your head going, that's great, thanks for your soapbox dialogue, Michael. But how do I actually make this make sense? What does this actually mean for what I have to present or negotiate? What does this whole rant on zero-sum pitching have anything to do with me getting my point across? I'm glad you asked, my eardrum-using amigo, amiga, compadre, partner in crime. And I'm going to borrow quite heavily from genius negotiator Chris Voss. He's an FBI negotiator. He ran the FBI negotiations team for years, freeing hundreds of thousands of Americans at the hands of vile, despicable people, or at the very least at the hands of people the U.S. helped put in power and then got pissed off with. And in that, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things that I think are the most poignant things he's mentioned in his work. And I definitely encourage you guys to check out his book and to download him on Masterclass and just absorb all the delicious goodies that this guy has to offer for negotiation. Now, like me, he says that negotiation was seen for a long time as a, as a zero-sum exercise. Your ambition in these negotiations was always to get as much out of the interaction as possible. But always, at 
the other person's expense. They were your enemy, your foe, your crazy enemy. <laughs> and the negotiation was your battleground. This adversarial posture that a lot of people who thought they were great negotiators tended to take forgot that there's actually a better way. What he says is that the idea here is to realize that the situation is the adversary and that the person across the table is your partner in crime, your negotiating partner. So your goal is to work with them, not against them, in pursuit of a mutually beneficial outcome. In short, great negotiation is collaborative. And in the spirit of collaboration, your overarching goals in a negotiation should be to do all you can to show them that you're negotiating in good faith. You're not here to deceive them, manipulate them, or exploit them in any way. And sometimes, showing deference can be really helpful. You should also include being genuinely interested in what drives the other side. This is the money maker. This is the sweet spot here. Knowing their goals, motivations, wants, fears, uh, in marketing speak, their activities, their interests, their opinions. This will help you negotiate and navigate the negotiation more effectively. Establishing an authentic, genuine, real human connection with your negotiating partner will help you get to an optimal outcome for both parties. If anything, for the simple fact that by you understanding their needs, their wants, where they want to go, you're in a better position to map yours with them, to find the shared connections you both have to find the shared meaning amongst yourselves. And once you find that shared meaning, that becomes your driver for the rest of the negotiation, the rest of your conversation. That becomes what will lead you to where you need to go. And he also says that building trust-based influence through the use of things like his, his tactical empathy or deliberately influencing the other side's feelings by appealing to their emotions, you can build rapport. You can build mutual understanding. You can build influence and ultimately you can get those deals done. Now beforehand, and to a certain extent I was guilty of this too, a lot of negotiators thought that by Eliminating emotion from the negotiation, taking a stoic view, is exactly what will lead you to getting the best possible outcome. Ironically, we were taking the people out of the game. But what we understand now through uh, studies on how the brain works, there's no way to cut people's feelings out of the process, no matter how stoic you might be. No matter how objective you might think you are. In reality, the more you suppress those emotions, especially the negative emotions, will actually increase your chances of fucking the whole thing up in the process. So how do you take emotions into account when negotiating without allowing them to dominate and take over your entire negotiation? Without allowing them to, to derail your negotiation. And one of the first things that he suggests here is try to deactivate the negative feelings. Things like fear, suspicion, anger, aggression, distrust. From a neurological standpoint, this means trying to diffuse all the fuzzy bubbles going on in the amygdala, the part of the brain that keeps those feelings going, that houses all those feelings. Try to diffuse that. Try and take the emotions out of negotiation as best as you can while still respecting the presence of people's humanness. So take out the negative. 
The second thing he says is aim to magnify positive emotions. People are actually smarter when they're a positive frame of mind. Building trust, comfort, and rapport will help you accomplish your goals. One trick that I love, trick, one technique that I love is I call people when it's sunny outside and I know it's sunny where they are. People are more likely to be happy, to be happier, to be open to new ideas and suggestions when the weather is great. When it's shit outside, when when the, the day is crap, they're more likely to be like, oh, fuck off, leave me alone, I'm going to move on. Come on, forget about it. But when it's sunny, when it's nice, when it's beautiful outside, they're like, oh my god, I totally want to I want to help this guy. I want to help this woman get what they want. And I get what I want out of it. You know, those kind of things. Finding ways to amplify, to magnify positive emotions, positive experiences, increases the relative positivity of your negotiation. It's also really helpful to completely eliminate the concept of the other person is insane. Assume at the very least that they have a rational, motivation-led, in fact, some strong feelings for wanting what they want, even though their goals might be completely different than yours. So the best way to get around that is to be curious. Use deference, empathy, influence, positivity, and build a rapport. Shared meaning is your key here to really craft the best deal possible. That's the best way to really, really connect with the other person and find ways that you two can collaborate on the best possible possible outcome for you both. Negotiations cannot be a zero sum. That's manipulation. And as we learned from the last segment, manipulation is bad, okay? So try not to manipulate. Try to be a little bit honest and straightforward and try to find ways to turn them into your partner. If not actually, then by the way you behave and the way you understand your relationship with them. Collaboration in this sense is key having that collaborative mindset having that approach where you want to build a relationship with them where you can actually after negotiations go out for brews go out for coffee go for a walk who knows to spend time with the person they should want to spend more time with you if you leave a negotiation and want nothing to do with the other person there's a good chance that they were being manipulative vice versa so be sensitive to that understand the nuances of building that relationship and use it to help you establish what you want and ensure everyone else feels like they got what they wanted too that is great negotiation that is the win-win approach to getting shit done So when I think back, way back to when I started first diving into the terms of negotiation, persuasion, and influence, back in the social media days too, it arose, my understanding of this, arose in the face of your average marketeer, your atypical ad man or ad woman whose sole purpose in life is to sell you more shit you don't need, whose main ambition is to couch creative work, if you can call it that, within the conversation of real meaning. I actually, when I first started, back in the day when I started doing social media consulting, uh, digital strategy consulting, it was on the back of tons of agencies and advertising companies trying to hawk their shit to brands so that their brands can hawk the same crap to others. But no one took the time to listen to the other person. No one took a minute to say, hey, 
what does our audience really need? And how can we give that to them? Social media introduced a new level of granularity to the conversation. It allowed us to tap into consumer insights that were previously unavailable. I had to work with legends in the advertising world dealing with outdated models like a brand key and other frameworks that allowed them to sort of try to make better sense of the world. But nowhere did it come close to the level of understanding and granularity that digital technologies was able to give us. What does this have to do with persuasion, influence, and manipulation? At the end of the day, there were brands whose sole purpose in life was to make sure that you bought their shit. They didn't care if it made sense. They didn't care if it fit. They didn't give a shit. If you didn't have the money for it, they just wanted you to pay them. And advertisers and salesmen did their best to separate you from your hard-earned cash, to take the time away from you and give it to themselves and their clients. And that formed the fundamental basis to my understanding of how manipulation in its dastardly sense, how manipulation truly is and truly has the potential to be fucking terrible, manipulative, to be misleading and harmful, especially to people you might want to do business with again. It takes a transactional approach, a one-off, I'm going to take this from you and we're going to run. You ain't going to see me again. Now, what that did was it led me to understand influence in a different light. It led me to look at social behaviors, social media behaviors, social uh, interactions in a different way. It led me to understand that to really get your point across, to really influence someone, ironically, you have to delete yourself from the picture. You have to put yourself in their shoes. Try to take a moment to understand where their interests lie and how you can best service them. See it as a partnership. See it as a collaborative exercise. And so when people ask me, is what I do manipulative? Is it unethical? My answer to them is that, well, first off, what I said today was to a client of mine, I said to him, like, listen, with great power comes great responsibility. The techniques and tools and strategies that I share with my clients and the research I've done in the space demonstrates that there is the capacity for us to shape and present information in such a way to bias someone towards where we want them to go, to control the unknowns and to shape decisions and actions in a way that works in our favor. But with great power comes great responsibility to use these techniques to harm someone or to bleed them dry of their last sense or any number of malicious intents is itself unethical and malicious. But that said, it's also important to note and to not gloss over the fact that these these psychological strategies, tendencies, techniques, these quote-unquote tricks, if you will, they exist because that's how we understand the world. They exist because that's how people process information and absorb communications from others. And as a salesperson, if you don't understand how your message is received, 
as a presenter if you don't understand how people can relate to your message then you're doing yourself a disservice it's as though you're trying to use a hammer to stitch a shirt you may understand how the tool works but given the particular application it doesn't fit what I'm trying to say here is that if you don't use all the tools at your disposal to get your point across or to get the job done you're doing yourself a disservice sure I can walk from Amsterdam to Paris my legs work and I can block off some time I could do the walk I could do even a bike but why would I when planes exist when cars exist when fuck, even a taxi if that exists why would I why would I do anything else if there is a more efficient and effective option out there to get the job done why are you doing the difficult thing and by doing the difficult thing it doesn't mean that it's any less ethical it just means that you're not using the tools at your disposal and I think by studying how people understand and process information you empower yourself to make sure the people you're talking to actually get your message and even more so if done properly getting your message requires you to understand how your counterparty thinks what matters to them and then shape what matters to you with that in mind so there's no more empathetic more genuine means of convincing someone than to persuade them it is the essence of true empathy to do it well otherwise you can go online download any one of those standard pitch templates or presentation decks fill that shit out send it off to someone spray and pray and hope that people think you're unique or that your idea is stronger than the framework in which you put it and the boring context in which you you stick it in fart it out into some shitty little canvas and hope that people get it or you can do the hard work you can do the research you can understand and empathize what people want with what people want to hear from you and how to get your point across the most effective way that's genuine both to yourself and to them and then and only then does persuasion and influence actually make sense everything else is zero-sum is manipulative it seeks for you to stand on top of others go ahead give it a try I guarantee you they won't ever let you stand on top of them again but if you do that like they do in the military if you stand on top of the shoulders to get to get over the fence and then have them climb up on your legs you're providing a conduit for them to grow too you're providing a collaborative experience analogies aside empathy is everything persuasion is not manipulation and the best way to get your point across is to understand the points that everyone else is trying to make and finding the shared meaning behind those points and messages and ideas and insights with what you believe in and then using that sweet spot to share your vision and share your ideas with others otherwise you're just an uneth unethical prick that no one will ever want to have to deal with again and along with the dinosaurs you'll die yourself out pretty quickly I suggest do it right listen to people connect with them on a meaningful sense and give them not just what they want but what you both truly seek to achieve out of the conversation.
All right, so I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, Michael, thanks for sharing all these delectable tidbits of information for my brain to consume about your opinions on the nature of manipulation and persuasion and what the connection is between the two. But do you have, and here's my question, Michael, you might say, do you have any examples of situations where it's actually manipulative? And I know you mentioned it's not because it's not, it's, it's what happens when, you know, after you've done the deal, person walks away, feels like shit, doesn't want to talk to you anymore, feels actually buyer's remorse. That's one way. Another example of pure dastardly manipulation, uh, one that is actually something that got me started in learning about persuasion and the nature thereof. Um, let me take you back back in the day from when I was in high school in the 90s. Some of you listening might actually have been born then. But back in the day, a movie, completely unrealistic movie called... What was it called? Oh, I'll tell you what it's called. Hackers. Hackers. That was my start. Completely full of BS and totally corporatized views on what hacking and coding was. But the terrible descriptions and amazing shots of Angelina Jolie at a very early age. Notwithstanding, I fell in love with coding and freaking and hacking and everything to do with circumventing rules and systems and structures that I believed were arbitrarily placed there. Of course, I was also like, what, 15, 16? Maybe even, early, maybe even younger. But uh, I remember there was this guy who would always hang out in the libraries and the computers and always be on the uh, on MIRC channels and ICQ and he was like the most techie guy in the school, which doesn't say much. You know, like a nice little Jewish school with four computers and a library that uh, this uh, this random homie is just going to be like. Anyways, dude, got me hooked on. The fact that you can get around systems, you can get around structures. And one of the most enticing ways to do that wasn't necessarily coding, because it took a lot, like, it wasn't necessarily coding, because I jumped in there and I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn how to code, I'm gonna learn how to do this. And when I started realizing, like, crap, coding takes up a lot of time and, and, and energy, and I don't really give a shit about that. I just wanna get, I just wanna get, get around things. So I discovered that the biggest vulnerability, the biggest hole in any security system, is like if you code, if you do with any, if you if you actually try to hack into things, you have to do a lot of covering up because everything's traceable. There's ev almost everything is traceable. You have to you have to bounce yourself around here and there, play with uh, Tor networks and and all kinds of different password like military grade, you know obfuscation of IPs and bouncings and shit like that and all these different things. You have to do a lot of stuff just to hide yourself. So I was like, I don't, I don't ain't nobody got time for that. So I was like, all right, what other ways are a little easier to get through? And the one vector that was always the most vulnerable, always there, and could be fucked with actually the people the people monitoring overseeing managing taking care of those with access to the secret holes in the system to get shit done people were the holes here so i found this little book a little handbook on social engineering you might be saying social engineering that still sounds pretty complex michael let me tell you it is and it isn't. It's kind of really cool shit. Social engineering is basically, it refers to, from what I'm reading here in AppSec by Imperva, it's a term used for a broad, a broad range of malicious activities accomplished through human interactions. It uses psychological manipulation to trick users into making security mistakes while giving away sensitive information. These kind of attacks happen in multiple steps. First, you got to do your homework, get a little background intel 
do some some research on the weak vectors in the company or in the space. So like potential points of entry, weak security protocols, lack of updates, etc. Then you move in to gain the victim's trust and provide stimuli for subsequent actions that then break security practices like giving away sensitive information or granting access to critical resources. And it's, what's interesting is that the, the way to do this is actually very innocuous. I'll give you an example. Um, Chris Voss mentioned in his book, and I mentioned this guy again, he's a fucking legend, but he mentioned in, in his book that there's this, uh, this technique where you label people's emotions. And once they agree, or once they say, that's right, that's how I'm feeling, or that's, that's exactly how the situation is, once they agree to that, that gives you an in, gives you access to, to them feeling like, hey, this guy gets me, or this woman gets me, this person understands me. But you can also mislabel emotions or feelings, and then entice your counterpart to correct you and then the correct you providing extra tidbits of information in search for what he calls the black swan the game-changing piece of info that you can then use to change the game and get through or use that information to your advantage and so part of that's and that is part of social engineering you can use that technique in negotiations that's great but you can also use that technique in solicit elicitation where you elicit information from your target in a way that's fairly innocuous that you wouldn't guess that i would then use that intel to then break into the system or to then use it to convince someone else of something else to get into the system to get access to the system because Inherently, people don't necessarily think that everyone's out to get them, or they're not as suspicious. If we went around day in, day out, thinking that someone's going to try to break in, someone's going to try to fuck with us, it would be exhausting. Except one one peek at Norse.se, I think it is, the global attack repository, live feeds on attacks happening all around the world from country to country, Quite the opposite is true. Every second of every moment of every day, people are trying to break in to your digital identity, your presence, everything. That's why technologies and softwares are in place to prevent that. So we don't assume or go around behaving as though everyone's trying to break in. And so social engineers, hackers, malicious black hat hackers, the bad version of the white hat hackers, the ones that test to find holes to help companies plug those holes. The black hats, the, the sketchy bastards, the, the ones that are going to do that to take your money or convince millions of people to give money to something, to them, to their cause. Those guys use social engineering and use elicitation uh, amongst other techniques to gain access to critical resources. And then, and then what's beautiful here is that unlike actually breaking in using computers where you can be traced, these kind of social engineers just walk away, cover their tracks, and they bring the charade to a neutral end after removing all traces of malware or anything that might be in the system. Sometimes it's automatically programmed in the malware to delete itself. So. That's why this kind of approach, using social engineering to gain access to these kind of vulnerabilities, is the biggest threat to companies' security today. Because it relies on human error instead of the actual vulnerabilities in software and operating systems. You can be like fucking Fort Knox, like total lockdown. But if the dude or the person has a key, they can be messed with using social engineering. 
And so there's lots of different kinds of attacks that you can use from, uh, you know, baiting, ransomware, uh, scareware, pretexting, phishing, spear phishing, all these kind of different things. And I invite you to, to research. I'm not going to go into detail. I'm not a security expert kind of thing. But my first piece of advice in this sense would be fucking just be more aware of where, where you leave your information. Would you give it the kind of data you leave behind? Be more scrutinous about your presence in the world. Be more aware of what's going on and what you can unlock for others. And the kinds of trust that you can make sure that you maintain so be, be be wary just uh keep a watchful eye that's all i gotta say in that sense in other words social engineering is a brilliant way to get through and get things done to solve problems if you do this from a noble perspective if you're trying to to help people sometimes finding holes in barriers helps you help others but as the name implies this kind of hacker's guide to social engineering can be pretty fucking sketchy you know it can it can be really sketchy and so you need to sort of understand at the end of the day that how you use your knowledge of how people process information, make decisions, and are motivated to make those choices. How you use your knowledge thereof to help yourself and others in a genuine and honest way will reflect on the type of person, the type of social engineer, the type of business person you are and indirectly it'll reflect on your broader relationship and reputation in whichever industry you find yourself so be careful with how where and why you can apply this particular method if you choose to apply it but in answer to your original question indeed this is one amazing way that people are using psychological and contextual manipulation for a negative end. almost like some kind of crazy ass premonition today I was little got a little notification on my phone the phone went ding and I was like what's going on telephone what are you trying to tell me and it said Twitter was just hacked and they specifically said this was a coordinated social engineering hack so what, I don't know, for those of you that haven't caught it, but some of the world's richest and most influential politicians, celebrities, moguls, companies were all the subject of a massive Twitter hack. The other day, yesterday, Wednesday, the, what is it? Fucking 15th of July. That's right. Keeping some fresh news for you guys. Elon Musk, Joe Biden, Jeff Bezos, Bloomberg, Kim Kardashian, and Bill Gates were all among the accounts pushing out tweets asking millions of followers to send money to a Bitcoin address. And you might be thinking, nobody is that stupid to do that. Well, my friend, I appreciate your intellect. I appreciate your ability to say that I said intellect incorrectly. And I appreciate the fact that you would not get bamboozled but they did walk away. These, these thieves did walk away with over $118,000 worth of Bitcoin. Twitter, of course, responded that once they knew what was going on, they immediately locked down all the hacked accounts, removed the tweets sent on their behalf, and also 
limited functionality for all verified accounts, including those that showed no evidence of being compromised while they were looking into things. Because basically, someone at Twitter let them in. What they said here, Twitter support was like, we detected what we believe to be a coordinated social engineering attack by people who successfully targeted some of our employees with access to internal systems and tools. Jack Dorsey was just like, this is a shitty day for Twitter. It's a tough day. And it feels terrible. So that's fine. Thing is, this is something that not many people can train for. So what we noticed here is that there's something like over 363 transactions since the tweets were posted. Uh, that You can see this on the blockchain. And the account that they used got over $118,000 in blockchain gold. Otherwise known as the B, the T, and the C, the, the Bitcoin. So, goes to show you that even today, you can still find that weak vector. And so here's the thing. They didn't target Kim Kardashian, Elon Musk. They didn't go through those cats because first off, it'd be too much work. Obviously. And, you know, smart hackers are lazy hackers. They're the best. I love them. And they didn't go through the channel itself. They went to the people managing the channel with access to it. And they planned this entire process. Probably meticulously. And so it's interesting how also they targeted blue checks or verified accounts. Which is ironic, because like, yeah, there's nothing, and ain't nothing secure. The, the one icon that Twitter uses to show that this account is trustworthy now has lost all value whatsoever. All because of social engineering. And so it's really, it, it's literally, this is a real world example. A super frouche case study on how social engineering despite and don't get me wrong twitter's huge I'm, I'm sorry they're big enough to afford crazy security systems and have protocols in place that would make even some segments of the military cry but despite all those security measures and protocols the one thing you can never ever plan for is the fallibility in people hum humans fuck up and with the right nudges the right understanding of psychology communications, human behavior and everything everyone can be a risk vector and everyone can also be an attacker so it matters at the end of the day it brings it back ethically speaking it brings it back to whether or not you use this great power with great responsibility. Or you take the money and run, bitches. Ha <laughs> ha! No. So that's that's my real world example. Like it could have happened frusher. So here you go, a steaming pile of Twitter for you guys, for your listening enjoyment. And uh, yeah, there you go. Look it up, Google it. Read up more about it, be informed, and always ask questions. Always. About fucking everything. Like, don't take anything for granted. Don't even take this shit for granted. You don't know. This, this could be a simulation, man. This, this is not real. You're in the Matrix. That level kind of shit. Be skeptical. A healthy dose of skepticism can go a long way to keeping you intact. Just be careful. You do too much of that skeptical deliciousness. You might end up in cynical hand, and in which case you'll just hate people in general and be a ranting, raging misanthrope. Don't know anyone like that. But uh, anyways, it's a good example. Thought I would share it with you. Breaking news alerts here on Son of a Pitch for your listening enjoyment. Alright. 
Alright ladies and gents, people and amoebas, anything with the ability to hear the crap coming out of my mouth, you have just listened to another riveting, bone-trembling, ear-flavorful episode of Son of a Pitch. Hope you liked it. Don't forget to smash a Reno on that subscribe button so that every time I post, you get to hear more of the shit coming out of my mouth because you and I both know secretly you love it. And I love you for it. So thanks again for listening. You ain't getting that half hour back, but I hope it was useful. Until next time, stay classy, stay sassy, stay hydrated, give zero fucks, and I will see you next time. Bye for now.